friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I am joined today by my friend Derek Silva. Hey, Derek. Hey, Nathan. Well, it's great to be talking. Uh, we're going to be talking about a very... We've been doing a lot of Canadian... CanCon, we call it. Canadian <laughs> content. I hope you don't mind. It's uh, probably not unrelated to the fact that I now live in Canada again. And so uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about and seeing Canadian things and they bother me. And so then I want to <laughs> talk about them. And there's no more Canadian thing really than hockey. Ha ha. Um, but, but seriously, there's also like no more fundamentally Canadian problem to talk about yeah. than hockey. And I, I think maybe our listeners will notice that if you are paying any attention to issues around sport, you know, justice, equity, harm, blah, blah, blah. And, and hockey that people will talk a lot about hockey culture and the problem with hockey culture. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I do think that sometimes that might be a bit opaque. Like what the heck are people actually talking about? What are they referring to when they say this thing, hockey culture, that is a problem. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, well, maybe it's time for us to sit down and talk to an expert about what hockey culture is. And so we've invited today uh, Christy Alain, uh, who is a sociologist at St. Thomas University, which is like the neighboring campus to the University of New Brunswick where I am. But that's kind of a cool coincidence because we're not talking to Christy because she just happens to be borderline a colleague of mine. Um, we're talking to her because she is one of the foremost experts in the world on hockey and on these kind of questions around hockey. So it's a really a fortuitous occurrence that we are, are, are located in such proximity to one another. Uh, Derek, do you have anything to add on that? No, I, I just think that this is a, a, an episode that is long overdue. And as you mentioned, that concept, hockey culture, is not only thrown around so much, but it's also this slippery concept that um, seems to change meaning depending on who's talking about. It. So it's going to be good for not just ourselves to have this conversation, but for listeners to kind of not uh, to, to get some definitional characteristics of what that looks like, but also why it's sort of so problematic. So we're really looking forward to sharing this um, interview with you all today. That's right. Exactly. Thanks, Derek. So I, I think with that said, just want to give the, um, the, the plug that we got to give every time, which is uh, if you could rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and any other podcasting platform, that would be hugely appreciated. Uh, and the other thing I want to really make clear is we have a really substantial archive at this point. And that means that if you are a fairly new, even fairly new, not just like brand new, even moderately new, even in the last year or two new mm -hmm. listener of the end of sport, it may be that we have covered topics that are of deep interest to you in great length in an earlier episode. And those episodes, I can promise you, are really are evergreen. They, yeah. they, don't, um, they don't age because we're not, for the most part, trying to be topical and just hit on a current event. We're, we're trying to, like we are in this conversation, provide um, a kind of comprehensive discussion that will allow people, to, that, that people can come back to as a way of thinking through these sort of larger problems in sport. Um, so, and, and the other thing is that we went, we went bananas in the first year of this show, <laughs> something like 50 podcasts in one year. Yeah. So, so for real, like there are a ton of episodes yeah. from 100, 2020. Over 115 episodes by the time this, this will air. Right. So um, anyway, check those episodes out. Uh, and, and the other thing is, please do look out on a weekly basis because we have been going strong, recording strong. And so um, in the indefinite future, throughout the summer at least, uh, you can expect a weekly episode of The End of Sport. Christy Alain is Associate Professor of Sociology and Canada Research Chair in Physical Culture and Social Life at St. Thomas University. Her work examines physical culture and its complex relationships with national identities, perhaps no more obvious than in her work on how men's hockey produces, contests, and supports dominant expressions of nas Canadian national identity. Christy, such a pleasure to have you on. It's really great to be here. 
Okay. Well, we, we have, I mean, a ton to talk about because you have done a ton of work on uh, not just hockey, quite frankly, uh, but you have done a ton of work on hockey specifically. Um, and we want to unpack as much of it as possible. But to, to start it off, I think we need to try to just situate it within this larger question that we're trying to get at today, which is the question of so-called hockey culture. And there's been a lot of talk about this so-called hockey culture and how problematic it is for both participants in hockey and non-participants alike. Yet, at least in the mainstream sports media, I would say that very little effort has been put into operationalizing or defining the concept. Could you start us off by giving your view on what quote-unquote hockey culture is, how and where it manifests and how it oscillates with expressions of national identity. For sure. I think I think this is a really important question because we're we've always I think the the media, the press has been a bit loose with this discussion of hockey culture. I think popular like sort of popular notions of what it means seem self-evident and they shouldn't. Um, it's a complicated idea. And I think the first thing we need to do is to really narrow it down. Where there are many hockey cultures, there's there's not one, and there's not one associated with men's hockey in Canada either. I mean, we can look to you know I, I do work with old men. There's a culture of of aging men's hockey that really changes as men grow older. Uh, over seventy is actually quite different than under seventy, for example. But I think the um, women's hockey has has various different hockey cultures as well, whether it's competitive or recreational. Uh, there's indigenous hockey cultures. So I think we need to think about, we need to ask what exactly we're talking about here. And I think when we talk about hockey culture, particularly how we've spoken about it over the last year, and it's it's linked to the Hockey Canada scandal and various issues in the NHL, is that we're talking about elite level men and boys hockey. Uh, we're talking about the hockey that's primarily played by seemingly straight, middle-class, able-bodied, young, often white men. Uh, we're talking about hockey that's played at elite levels, the hockey that's privileged, the hockey that's tied to a sense of what it means to be Canadian, the hockey that we tend to celebrate is embedded in our national culture. So these things are sort of connected to one another. And a kind of hockey that's tied to a lot of troubling practices around physical violence, violence on the bodies, violence on the bodies of others, sexual violence, etc. Um, this is what we talk about when we talk about hockey culture. It's it's part of what it means to be Canadian. It has a really long history uh, to really the birth of the nation. It has colonial roots. Um, you know, that hockey is kind of connected to colonial understandings of what it means to be Canadian, that tie to a kind of terra nullius, that, you know, these white settlers came here, had to overcome this kind of cold, harsh, hard north, produced a particular kind of masculinity, and that masculinity is realized in the sport of hockey. And we hear this, you know, through the kind of poetic musings of people like Roy McGregor, uh, through the less poetic musings of people like Don Cherry. And we know that this kind of attitude towards hockey produces something that can be really troubling. And, and we've seen that over the last year through uh, players speaking out about hazing, uh, through the scandals of alleged sexual violence that have come forward with uh, the Canadian World Junior teams, uh, with... Uh, the sexual assault and harassment of, of players in the NHL uh, by people who who were supposed to be, you know, caring for them. Um, these things are connected. They have a long history. They're tied to cultures of violence, and and that's what that's what we're talking about when we're talking about hockey culture. We're talking about not a particular moment, but we're talking about a particular set of players, a particular kind of privilege, and one that has a long-standing history on this land and is connected to particular forms of celebrated national identity. I, I think that nuance, that sort of nuanced approach to understanding hockey culture, not as such, but hockey cultures uh, is, is absolutely vital. And I, I, I really appreciate the focus here on a particular type of elite, let's call it elite masculine um, uh, hockey culture. And, and with that kind of, understanding that we're talking about that specifically could you kind of go into a little bit more detail and you've already kind of started this sort of explain what in your view 
uh, and based on your work, what makes that particular um, form of hockey culture so toxic? And again, you've, you've kind of already highlighted some of this as well. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, my my colleague and friend, Tobias Stark, has written about this. He, he wrote this, this lovely essay called The Poet, the Pioneer, and the Pal. And he talks about that he's a historian, so he gets to do things that I don't do as well. But he really looks at how Canadian national identity and its link to hockey is produces this kind of pioneer. And, and we can see that in, in the ways that the game is kind of romanticized around the North, that it produces a kind of aggressive and hostile masculinity. Uh, one that, you know, we imagine is suited to a game that exists in a place that's hard to live in. Um, and that this kind of, this, this is a symbol. I mean, this isn't a reality. We we live in very cushy places, right? My I have the heat on in my home today on the 20th of June. Um, but it produces a kind of sense of what it means to be Canadian and what it means to play the game that's tied to aggression, to violence, to a kind of ruggedness, to this kind of pioneering spirit. Um, and through that, that celebration of violence and aggression and this kind of rough, tough hockey masculinity, we it spills out, right? It's not just something we see on the ice. It's in, it pervades the locker room. It pervades the players' um, interactions with one another. And it's also produced intergenerationally. So hockey exists as a what we might call a closed institution, as do many elite level sports, it celebrates itself by uh, recycling its former players into coaches, into managers, into stakeholders. There's the idea that you can't be in hockey without having participated in it. Uh, so it shuts out uh, almost all women. Uh, it shuts out people who are different, people who might want to challenge the game, people who weren't successful and might be able to tell us stories about why they weren't successful in the game. They're, they're locked out of, of the institution um, and they're in, oftentimes vilified by the institutions as people who are a threat that are, that are going to make it bad, make it worse, that don't understand, that can't help. Um, so there's this kind of leeriness of outsiders and this has allowed some really deeply disturbing behaviors to be perpetuated in a system because they become normalized by people who have been through the system and in themselves benefited from the system and are producing the same thing in generation after generation of players. And so it does produce uh, these kind of toxic cultures, cultures of hazing or the ritual sexual abuse of players. Mm -hmm. We know that these are often condoned by management, by coaches. They're hidden from the public. They're, uh, you know, there's a don't tell kind of mentality um, about this. It, it keeps players silent and, and into sort of this, it produces shame amongst players and inability to speak out when, when other forms of sexual violence are happening. And these things are just perpetuated, I think, generation after generation in really deeply troubling ways. To be a part of a hockey team, and I heard this from the players I spoke to during my both my master's and my PhD work, uh, requires a level of conformity that I... I couldn't have otherwise imagined have, if I hadn't have spoken to the players, you know, from the underwear they wear to the kinds of music they listen to, to where, how they spend their time. Um, hockey teams at the uh, men's hockey teams at the elite level are really resistant to any kind of difference. And, and this, you know, in light of the kind of culture that's being produced, you know, has the potential to produce, I think some really harmful effects socially. And, and we've been seeing that. We've been seeing that for for generations, really. There's so much um, that was really rich in what you're saying, and that the point about conformity is particularly fascinating to me. But I, I wanted to slightly circle back to something you were saying just before, because I think it gets to the heart of, you know, if we want to talk about hockey culture as this thing, um, you're getting at this way in which it's reproduced generationally. And I think that that is what, um, if, if we're to highlight anything about hockey culture that we need to understand as a culture or as a system or as a structure and not a kind of bad apple issue, right? Because I think that what often happens when there's a scandal, 
is that it's framed through that, that prism. Oh, there's bad actors. These players did bad things. Or the people in charge of Hockey Canada, they're doing bad things, right? So if we can get rid of, if we can sanction the players who are doing bad things or the administrators who are allowing the bad things, then we can get back to the purity of the game, right? Getting back to the beautiful thing at the heart of Canadian hockey, kind of in, this, in the same way that there's a desire in the U.S., right, to get back to this core, wonderful Americanness as if it's on a society built on slavery and genocide against Indigenous people and so forth, right? That there's no actual beautiful thing there. This is what it is. Um, and I think that it, the same thing kind of analogizes to hockey here, because as you're pointing out, you can't just paper over these problems precisely because everyone who is teaching the game right now, for instance, was socialized within this culture that we are trying to problematize, right? Within all of these issues that you're highlighting, that's the environment that that nurtured and socialized all of the people who teach the game. So uh, where do you separate out the good and the bad things about hockey? It's kind of all mixed together. And there's no one or two people, right, that you can kind of put that responsibility on. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, it, it's a systemic issue. It's about the system. It's it's not bad apples. And I was I was briefly excited uh, during the initial conversations about the Hockey Canada scandal that I thought we were moving from a discussion of bad apples to a discussion of mm-hmm. a broken system. And then you know, I looked at how these issues got resolved, how quickly Sport Canada how eager they were to reinstate hockey Canada to reinstate their funding. Yeah. Um, you know, it is, we have to move beyond bad apples. It's to blame a player as a bad actor. When, when these problems happen, you know, Laura Robinson was writing about this in the nineties. Uh, there's the McMurray, Mc, McMurphy report, McMurtry report in the 1970s about hockey violence. Yeah. Um, these have long, long histories um, they can't be fixed by the people who broke the system either, right? If this is a systemic problem, we have to do an entire rethink of what hockey is, how it exists for young men, how boys are trained into the system, who's coaching, who's training, whose values are being imposed here. And and hockey, you know, hockey was very interested in getting things back on track quickly. Uh, restoring funding, as was Sport Canada, restoring funding, getting things moving again, um, without doing the, I think, the necessary work of of reconsidering the whole sport itself, right? Is the way we train our young men just ultimately going to produce these forms of violence? And so we have like a rupture, but this need to fix the system, um, we didn't sort of blow it open wide enough. And I think hockey's been remarkably resistant to really throwing open the doors and really shining light because it's just such common sense that the best people to teach hockey are those who are successful in the game, right? People like us don't get a lot of input into what the system might actually need. You know, people who are different don't get a lot of input into what the system might actually need. And so it just kind of carries on. Um, you know, hockey needs an entire an entire rethink. The people who broke the system are not capable of fixing the system. Um, you know, I was completely amazed to hear, uh, you know, the president of Hockey Canada say repeatedly that, you know, he was good. He was fine. Everything's good here. And, you know, I was excited to see the kind of social pressure for, for him to step down, for the board to be replaced. But it really stopped there. Mm-hmm. You know, the board for Hockey Canada are put in place by the boards of, you know, uh, the various leagues across the country. There is no change there. There's no rethinking of coaching. There's no rethinking of training. And, you know, it sort of came to a head for me. My my younger sister's sons play elite level hockey in Peterborough and they're young. And, you know, one of them came home when he was just tiny, like nine, maybe or 10. And when my sister asked him what had happened at hockey, that, that, that game, he said, you know, what happens in the room stays in the room. The coach said, we shouldn't talk to our parents about what's going on here. And, 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, you know, for me, it really hit home. This was something I heard repeatedly from players I interviewed that this was a private space. I heard a lot of really canned answers. I heard a lot of media training. <laughs> you can really yeah. feel the media training when you talk to some of these guys. And because the system is so closed, it's so able to protect itself, but it's also so unaware of, of how broken it is because it just creates its own kind of common sense of, of what we need to produce good teams, that producing good teams and winning teams is the ultimate goal. And there's no, there's no challenge because they won't let you know, radical voices in to suggest that there might be an entirely different way of doing this. Yeah, and that point is so important because in in my, in my view, like I don't know if there's a sport that exists um, like elite hockey that recycles so much of like not only the same ideas, the same like um, cultures, the same norms, the same behaviors, but also I think perhaps more importantly when you talk about how culture kind of uh, embeds itself in in structures, the actual people. People um, in places like Hockey Canada, in elite coaching, they are just simply recycled. And it's almost like they're just kind of going through the motions of if someone does something wrong or like loses their job or like um, acts in inappropriately to players, they, they're going to get a next job uh, six months later somewhere else. And it's, it's really um, kind of horrifying when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, how could we expect, you know, A, for these people to know that there is a major problem or B, for them to be able to do anything about it? It's the same people. They were trained the same way. You know, it really would call into question their entire careers and and their youth. The joy they got out of hockey is entirely called into question by the problems of hockey now. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot to ask people to face that. But you're, I, I, you're right. There are few other institutions and even sporting institutions that, that favor themselves in the way that, um, that hockey does. And I think, yeah. you know, that does speak to, to a, somewhat to an understanding that this is a problem, mm -hmm. right? This is something that we have to protect because other people wouldn't understand. They'd tear it down. They wouldn't support yeah. us because it's, it's broken and it's gross. Yeah. Yeah, that that's actually a very interesting point. Uh, maybe we can return to that um, throughout. Uh, so you so you mentioned Don Cherry, and I I don't think it's possible to talk about hockey culture, um, at least masculine elite hockey culture, without talking about Don Cherry. And in general, a lot of your work provides really interesting case studies of of the interconnectedness of this particular hockey culture. And what I'm really interested in, and I've been interested in my own work, is how the, the hockey culture is interconnected with kind of singular notions of Canadian national identity and how those two things kind of come web, become webbed together. And in 2016, you wrote a piece on crisis masculinity, Canadian national identity, and nostalgia in Don Cherry's Coach's Corner, which is a sort of famous um, intermission, a hockey night in Canada intermission show for those who are um, unfamiliar with it. It comes on during the break between periods. Uh, of, of big, heavily televised uh, um, national games. And in this piece, you argued uh, that, and I'm quoting now, Don Cherry's articulation morality are linked to discourses of masculinity in crisis, taking the form of a nostalgia privileging of an anachronistic style of masculinity that locates an appropriate sense of masculine style within a particular class consciousness, namely the working class, and a particular geographic locale, namely small-town Canada. Could you explain what you meant by this and how, more specifically, Don Cherry's influence on Canadian national identity is, is possibly um, particularly problematic? Yeah. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about Don Cherry. I'm, I'm back working, I'm back thinking about Don Cherry. I think, you know, since the 2019, since he was fired in 2019 and, thinking about how Don Cherry becomes sort of a lightning rod for Canadian national divides, particularly along class lines. But I would argue that, you know, Don Cherry is this kind of flamboyant, troubling face of hockey for, for many years. Um, he presented a kind of Canadian identity tied to, tied to masculinity that was always at, at risk of, uh, being 
taken away by, you know, uh, the media, American owners, uh, Gary Batman and elites in the NHL. And, and you know, Don Cherry was a, a fervent proponent of the rough, tough, so-called Canadian game. Mm-hmm. Um, and he located that game, you know, within the working class and within small town Canada, which, um, you know, was is the way we kind of mythologize hockey in Canada as a sport that's equitable, that everybody has access to. And that comes out of, you know, working class kids throwing on a pair of skates and kind of wandering down to the, the local pond where they can play on the frozen pond, you know, until it's dark and they'll come home and their parents will give them a hot chocolate and a pat on the head, you know, and warm their feet. This is, this is the myth of Canada. This isn't, I think what's important though, is that it's not just Don Cherry's myth of Canada. Mm-hmm. Don Cherry presented it in a, in a particularly class coded way. But it's also Roy McGregor's myth of Canada. It's it's the myth of almost every sport journalist that you read. Um, and what that does is it kind of locates Canadian national identity as rural, um, which we can code as white. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can think about the ways that rurality in Canada becomes sort of a, a code for not black, the ways that urban centers are, even though that's, we know that that's untrue, but that's the way we imagine it. It's, it's not, there's no immigration there. We can think about Don Cherry's firing and his concerns about um, Mississauga as a place of, of immigrants that didn't understand the significance of Canada and, and war heroes apparently. But, you know, I think it's important to think about Don Cherry as, as a particular marker of, of class and the critiques of him as, as critiques of class, not as critiques of the system, hockey culture and the hockey culture that Don Cherry celebrates is not only celebrated by Don Cherry. In fact, um, you know, I, I tuned into the, the newly revived, whatever they replaced hockey night in Canada with and saw celebrations of the same sort, just coded in different language. Um, that when you really dig down into what's happening, this nostalgic notion of of hockey and Canadian identity is pervasive, not with Don Cherry, but with most people who talk about hockey in this country. What I think people object to with Don Cherry, um, not entirely, but in part, is the way he couches his notion of self in, um, in a in a kind of working class identity in a, sorry, my baby just came home. She's grumpy. Um, so, you know, that this working class identity becomes, uh, becomes the point that I think Don Cherry is, it's the thing that people object to about Don Cherry more than anything else. And I, I wouldn't have said that before I started the project I'm working on now, but, you know, I looked at, what we what the press has said about Don Cherry over his career, and the the leading thing that the press has objected to about Don Cherry is the way he speaks, and they've just called him stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not a critique about the violence. Um, hockey commentators routinely celebrate violence. They celebrate hard hits. They celebrate the importance of fighting at the right time. You know, they may not celebrate the importance of fighting all the time. But, you know, the perfectly timed fight for the the correct purpose, they still celebrate a a kind of hockey masculinity that's tied to a kind of code um, the same ways that Don Cherry did. When we think about Don Cherry, he's a problem because his voice was loud, because he had such a public space to present his views. But those who have replaced him are not actually presenting a radical break with his ideas. Yeah. In fact, they're they're really deeply in line. So when we think about Don Cherry, I think it's it's important. This is a little far away from crisis masculinity, but mm-hmm. I think they're all presenting a crisis masculinity. The objections for Don Cherry are around this notion of working classness. Because Ron McLean was always complicit in that, right? I mean, it's like Ron McLean was always sitting beside Don Cherry, but no one was objecting to Ron McLean, even though he was essentially agreeing with every point. He's totally agreeing. I mean, even in in Don Cherry's final final hurrah, his his last terrible rant, 
um, you know, when Don Cherry says, I have to protect the troops, you know, and, and Ron McLean replies, and this is his quote, we love you for it, mm. you know, and gives the yeah. thumbs up and the big smile and doesn't comment that this is troubling or problematic in any way, just celebrates what's happening in the space. Um, Ron McLean believes the same things I think it's Don Cherry does. There's lots of evidence that they both supported violence. They both supported fighting. They both were resistant to changes in the game. Um, and so we have to ask, how is class operating here or the representation of class? Because certainly it's hard to imagine Don Cherry is a member of the working class, but he he presented himself as such and really wrapped himself around a kind of white working class masculinity, one that we should be interested in today, I think, because, you know, the right wing certainly is interested in, in capturing those voices and hearing those views and, and taking them seriously, something that I think folks on the left have had a harder time doing. Yeah, that, that's, that's a ton of insight. Um, let's, let's shift maybe then to just continue teasing out this conversation to a couple more of the case studies that you have done on different sort of really prominent figures and those who have been discursively represented in ways that have been um, tremendously impactful. Namely, I'll start with Alexander Ovechkin, um, the sort of Washington Capitals superstar player. And also, you've also separate, separately written, though, about Sidney Crosby, um, the mm -hmm. Canadian star. Uh, and both of the sort of the ways in which the representation of each, I think, has a real impact on how fans are taught, right, socialized to understand what hockey culture should be. Um, now, in the context of Ovechkin, uh, you wrote about him as an expression, in a way, of Canadian national identity and a piece for the Sociology of Sport Journal, where you argued that media framing of, and I quote now, Ovechkin and other Russian hockey players as wild, unpredictable, and out of control produce Canadian players as polite, disciplined, and well-mannered. And, and I continue quoting now, through these opposing representations, the media helps to locate Canadian national hockey identity within a frame of appropriate masculine expression, end quote. But of course, what we've been hearing from you here is that there is perhaps nothing appropriate at all about the masculine expression of Canadian national hockey identity. Could you walk us through the, the problem really with this framing that national hockey identity is sort of polite, disciplined, well-mannered, and even docile, um, and how, that, how we can understand that through the way in which Ovechkin has been spoken about, and also maybe contrasts with the Sidney Crosby experience? Yeah, so you've got, you know, Sidney Crosby as this model, this model masculinity that that uh, Alex Ovechkin, even though he plays what I think people might have understood to be a more Canadian style game, a grittier, uh, rougher, more physical game than Crosby. He's often throughout, he's often denigrated in the press as, you know, dirty, too outspoken, not polite, not disciplined, not well-mannered. And that's often positioned in contrast to Crosby. And of course that makes sense. They were two incredible superstars that come up, you know, just by happenstance and of the lockout strike in the same year, they enter the league in the same year. And, and the press becomes really interested in, in comparing and contrasting these two players. But at the same time, these players become kind of emblematic of, of their countries. Um, for Ovechkin, not just emblematic of Russia, present-day Russia, but of the Canadian-Soviet um, uh, tensions that have existed from the Cold War forward. Uh, and then, you know, Crosby becomes this model of Canadian, Canadian appropriate Canadian hockey masculinity. And, and this, if we look at work by people like Michael Robodeau, we can take this back to... Uh, to the kind of birth of hockey as a, as a national sport and the ways that it kind of adopts um, this notion that hockey is produced on the land, that it comes from the land, that it has uh, even indigenous roots on the land, but the ways that it, you know, it, it can't be the indigenous game. It needs to be something else. And to do that, it wraps itself in a kind of, a, a kind of white middle-class masculinity tied to being well-dressed, well-disciplined, polite, uh, off the ice and and rough, tough, and aggressive on the ice. You know, when we when we shroud these things in this, it's, it makes it hard to to understand hockey players as players who can commit 
heinous acts of violence, both against themselves, against other players, and against members of the community, particularly women. So there's a lot of work being done here. I think when the press, you know, presents Russian players in this way, because the work that's actually being done is it's it's producing a kind of celebrated Canadian masculinity and one that's hard to call into question. Who doesn't like a well-dressed, polite, disciplined, well-mannered young man, right? Yeah, and and I I think part part of this uh, this representation is like is it's kind of this constant um, or constant claim that sort of we've all been there. Like uh, we're all on like and when the Humboldt Broncos uh, bus tragedy happened and the bus crash happened, the headlines were reading, "Oh, we've all been on that bus," and um, we've all been there in that in that arena, traveling around, and in reality, we're, s- we're simply not. So yeah. highlighting highlighting how um, Canadian national hockey identity is not this sort of universal and singular thing is is actually really I think an important project um, and an important project that I don't think people within the hockey power elite are even considering or like willing to to entertain um, in their discussions of hockey and you're right we see it still on whatever they replaced Hockey Night in Canada with on Bell and, and Rogers. I kind of want to switch focus and and look at some of the more contemporary things that are happening in the sports world and tease out how your work might inform some some of what we're seeing kind of happen all around us. And the first place I'd like to begin um, is uh, what happened with the Chicago NHL franchises, um, sort of utter complicity um, in harming and I would argue legitimizing sexual violence against Kyle Beach. Um, and the NHL's subsequent, in my view, cover-up, uh, attempted cover-up of, of everything. And this was um, uncovered brilliantly in a series of expos- exposés um, by Rick Westhead. Um, and the NHL and the hockey media industrial complex, I think, have been forced to, perhaps for the first time ever, to actually talk about things like toxic hockey culture. Um, I think 10 years ago, you wouldn't have even heard hockey culture as a term referenced, whereas I think that mainstream hockey media is now for the first time actually talking about it. That said, in my view, the ways in which the NHL, the NHLPA, hockey media, and even players actually engage with and talk about the sort of toxicity um, of hockey culture has been kind of minimizing and apologetic. And we talked about this earlier in terms of I think it's approaching bad apple territory. And that's pretty much the ways in which um, those involved in the hockey elite talk about um, hockey culture, that it's just a a few bad apples. What are your thoughts on how the hockey world has responded to um, perhaps the relatively tame, let's call it reckoning, that has occurred since what happened in Chicago and Kyle Beach? It demonstrates that there's real resistance from the NHL down to actually seeing real change in elite level hockey. It's so much easier to attribute this to a few bad actors than, than to actually look at your system. The NHL can't exist in the ways that it does. If we actually look at the system as a whole, um, Mm. that's not its job, right? I mean, we can't, we can't expect corporate capitalism to to want to blow itself up to make the world a better place. Its job is to make money and that's what it's done. And that's what it's demonstrated. It's our job to point that out, right? And Mm -hmm. to keep pressure on. But the NHL itself can't fix itself. It's not in its interest to fix itself. It it might see a dip in profits. It, It might produce, you know, lots of bad press that turn people away from the sport. Its job is to target this as a bad actor, to say that they're going to do things so that there are no more bad actors and to carry on with business as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they can't support real, real change in the system. The, just, the system is fundamentally flawed. The people at the top would have to uh, get rid of themselves to make, to make real change. And that's just not, that's just not possible. The fact that we don't see more of this, I think speaks to the fact that hockey culture is about keeping secrets. 
you know, it's about hiding this. So we shouldn't be surprised when there's scandals and we see cover-ups and that it takes people a long time to come forward with the, the various forms of abuse they've experienced in these leagues that, you know, it's often retired players that are coming forward to talk about hazing that they experienced in major junior A hockey. Um, it's not surprising, right? In a system that privileges conformity, that privileges silence, that, uh, that holds so much of the life and dreams of these young people in their hands to create a stir means basically to be driven out of the league. I heard this repeatedly when I spoke to players. Uh, their bad treatment needed to be endured silently or else mm -hmm. they couldn't continue with their sport beyond the level they were at. Nathan? Derek, do you have a follow-up? Okay, I just wasn't no. sure if you had a follow-up on, on that one. Okay. Um, Okay, the next thing I want to move to here um, is uh, something that I wouldn't say I call it implicit because you've been you've been gesturing to it, but um, that we could perhaps make more explicit about this question of nationalism, right, in hockey. Because when we're talking about nationalism in Canadian hockey, there is a very significant way in which we're having a conversation about race um, and a way in which hockey culture is essentially coded in Canada as white, right? But that this is, I would say, a very complex question in the context of a country that is also putatively multicultural, right? The, that the, the way in which Canada has tried for the last 50 years, really, to perform its own identity, both domestically and internationally to an audience of the world, is that this is a multicultural country, which draws people from around the world through migration, and that we celebrate all different multicultures in Canada. But that discourse of multiculturalism has been um, very incisively critiqued by many as a kind of, um, well, as performative and tokenistic, right? Because there's a way in which those multicultures revolve around the what is imagined to be true culture of whiteness and the sort of like Anglo whiteness that really kind of is at the heart of how Canada and those with so much power and authority in Canada perform themselves. And hockey becomes this really important site, I think, for dramatizing all of these tensions in Canada um, because it is so closely linked to Canadian national identity, obviously, in general. and and um, and so I would say that like it becomes really um, important for us then to kind of to weigh the extent to which hockey culture itself, Canadian hockey culture, mainstream hegemonic Canadian hockey culture should be understood as fundamentally racist. And this is something that I think was dramatized in a, in a particularly um, interesting way, especially in 2020, right? Because in 2020, we saw this moment of uh, anti-racist uprising in the United States and in Canada, where athletes in so many sports spoke out against a system of racial capitalism. And again, much of that was performative. And I think especially with the power of retrospect and a few years between that moment and today, I, I think the, the performative and tokenistic nature of a lot of that has become crystal clear. Nevertheless, what is, I think, striking is that in the hockey world, despite what was unfolding in basketball and football and so forth, um, and especially in women's sports leagues of all sorts professionally, in hockey, in men's hockey, in the NHL, most were incredibly silent. Even when the Hockey Diversity Alliance, a group of nine racialized NHLers, gained a very significant amount of deserved attention for speaking out against racism in hockey. In fact, while the NHL was initially performatively supportive of Hockey Diversity Alliance, the group ultimately had to cut ties with the NHL entirely, citing a lack of real material support. This is to say that the NHL was initially over the moon when HDA announced its intentions, but when it ultimately came to needing that material and organizational support, the group was basically ghosted by Gary Bettman and the rest of the league. So this is really all to frame the question then, which is, why do you think that hockey remains so silent on social issues, particularly issues of racial justice? And would you say that that is, in fact, a peculiar tendency to hockey culture? 
I think it speaks volumes about the whiteness of hockey culture, mm. right? Um, the white middle classness of, of hockey culture that many of the folks who are involved in hockey have only done hockey. They've only experienced hockey. Hockey is so all encompassing to their, to their lives, to their summers, to their winters, um, that they've experienced so little else and know so little of the world. Um, and that is kind of unique. It has to do with the cost of hockey. The fact that these costs are largely privatized as opposed to football, um, which isn't quite privatized in the same way. You know, parents are funding their children's hockey. Um, and the fact that it, uh, we look at Courtney Cito's work, that hockey culture has been policed as white, that it's really hard for players who are not white to feel welcome, to have space. We can think about Akima Liu and what, what's gone on recently with the, the, the GTHL. Um there's there's not a lot of space and there's not really a desire to create space that uh, hockey culture has just existed as white. And, and there's a kind of common sense to that in the same way that this is a common sense about what it means to be Canadian. Hockey is not the only symbol that does this, though, right? We can think about the Mounties in a similar mm -hmm. way. Uh, we can think about the Canadian military in a similar way that the, these kind of images of the you know, the, the white hyper-masculine individual coming in and producing a kind of form of masculinity has been central to Canadian national identity in a, a very particular way of silencing and marginalizing uh, those who don't fit that mold, those who are not white, those who are not men, and pushing them to the outsides of, of these national projects that, you know, we exist as a multicultural country, but we can't actually those, you know, newcomers can't actually ask for what they need. You know, um, they can't ask for material supports. Uh, we can think about the TFW, the Temporary Foreign Workers Program. Mm -hmm. um, hockey is white. It's very white. It's a shockingly white sport. And, and part of that is class. Part of that is its ties to, it's just it's historic, historically a white space that it's been incredibly resistant. Again, we come back to that intergenerational it's the same people so there are very few new faces people who can actually perform real authentic welcoming of folks who don't look like everybody else on the team can create space for those people but i think also you know hockey has has tried to do a lot of things you know it's um been courted by the right the far right mm -hmm. the center <laughs> to to say important and meaningful things about what it means to be Canadian, right? We saw hockey yeah. symbols, the, the, the road games during the, the right-wing protests in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen uh, less right-wing, but still right-wing uh, politicians create something called center ice hockey, where they've, you know, tried to reposition hockey as something that belongs to the center and not to the far right in the wake of this. Um, and because hockey particularly commercialized hockey, the NHL, the CHL is courting all of these things simultaneously. It's really hard for it to do anything kind of radical or interesting. You know, it's happy to support the Hockey Diversity Alliance. It's happy to support LGBTQIA plus um, causes, needs, as long as it's not going to impinge on what it understands to be its core fan base, which is, uh, which is the people Don Cherry spoke to often white, suburban, and rural working class men. Um, so it's it's had to kind of deal with this. The players themselves who have seen very little adversity in their life, who've had to think very, have not had to think very hard about what life might be like for, for people who don't look like them. Uh, they're not capable. You know, their whole life has been hockey. Their education has been hockey. They're not capable of producing, you know, uh, social movements geared towards change. And it shows. Mm -hmm. it, it really shows. I mean, hockey is conservative. It's not just conservative of the players. It's conservative throughout, you know, from its fans to its um, to the press that reports it to the players itself. Mm -hmm. And you, you gestured to this, but th this past um, March, we saw, in my view... Uh, sort of an absolute attack on LGBTQIA2S plus um, communities. 
by some players, by some notable figures in the NHL. And this is all in the context of sort of an NHL that claims that hockey is for everyone, the sort of famous campaign um, that the NHL has led, and talks about how inclusive the sport is and has been. But yet you see moments that highlight um, what a performance that sort of inclusivity really is. And like I said, this past March, um, we saw a number of NHL players, most notably James Reimer and uh, the brothers Stahl, decline participation in pregame skates on Pride Night because they would gasp, have to wear a jersey with rainbow colors on it. Now, I don't really want to get into the sort of statements released by these athletes or anything like that, but they basically said that they don't hate anyone, they just don't want gay or trans people around, uh, and thus any sort of representation, such as a rainbow design on a jersey, is against their beliefs. Even though um, I think it's important to note that Eric Stahl happily wore a similar Pride Night jersey during his time in Montreal. Of course, this is an anti-gay um, and anti-trans position, and we don't have to um, work hard to counter that here. But what I'm interested from you, um, Christy, is how this ties into this elite masculine hockey culture. Um, in other words, in your view, is hockey culture an incubator of anti-LGBTQ and anti-trans rhetoric? And if so... Do you think we understand how widespread this uh, these anti-LGBTQ perspectives are in the hockey world? I think, is it an incubator? It really promotes a kind of masculinity that, that pushes against anything that's feminine. And so what we see here from the players and from others, and I think we see this in, in lots of men's collision sports, is the kind of conflation of sexual identity and gender identity. Um, and I thought this, you know, from the beginning of the if you can play movement, you know, this notion that if you can play, you can play. And then when you sort of dove into what the players were saying, um, if you can play was really saying, if you can play, look, sound, and be exactly the same way as, you, as we are, you're welcome here in the NHL. And of course you are. We don't care who you sleep with, but we do care quite a lot about how you perform masculinity. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's what we're, that in that way, you know, the kind of masculinity produced in in this environment and, and some other sporting environments as well, um, is one that celebrates a kind of rough, tough physicality and really degrades and expresses disdain for anything that's feminine, anything that's soft, yielding, uh, that, that expresses particular forms of emotion. Um, and in that way, these locker rooms are anti-women and anti-queer spaces. And they will continue to be that way as long as this form of masculinity is the one that's ascendant in these spaces. Okay, well, so speaking of masculinity then, we also have the question of what this means for other spaces in which hockey is played in Canada, right? And we've been focusing in this conversation, you focus in your work um, predominantly on men's hockey because that's where so much of this, first of all, that's where so much of the sort of celebration of the sport is. And then secondly, that's where so much of these harmful um, cultural and structural factors kind of play out. But then we also have um, women's hockey culture. And I'm really curious if you would say that some of the most harmful and really toxic features of hockey culture, if those features are also expressed in the women's game in this country in the same way, or if women's hockey in Canada provides us with, you know, a potential alternative space or a way of understanding what hockey might look like. Yeah, I think women's hockey culture is different than than men's. The spaces are different. Um, I want to be really careful not to glamorize or to glorify the fact that women's sport hasn't had access to the same kind of commercial uh, opportunities that, that men's sport has. But it has allowed it to develop differently. The, the expressions of gender and sexuality are, I think, much more diverse, which means, uh, you know, the... the what it means to be a woman's hockey player is, is quite a bit different. And I think than what it means to be a men's hockey player in terms of thinking about the gender order and that men who play hockey are conforming, whereas 
women who play hockey are often transgressing normative mm. forms of femininity, and that's going to create a, a much much greater potential for you know something interesting, I think, to happen rather than something troubling. Um, this is not to say that you know all the you know women's sport, even when it's competitive, when it's commercial, you know there are still going to be problems. But in terms of gender identity, I think we've we've seen fewer. Um, we've not seen none, but we've seen fewer. And I think that. I think that where we see the real potential is when we take hockey away from these commercial competitive environments and allow the game to be something different entirely. So that can be a, you know, a recreational women's space that can be the hockey played by 75 year old men that can be, um, you know, a spontaneously produced game at the, you know, the neighborhood rink that we actually see a different kind of hockey, a more inclusive kind of hockey, when we get it away from these commercial spaces, when we get it away from these competitive spaces. And I think the real challenge for all of us is how can we harness some of the lessons from these other spaces? Um, you know, I think about the end, Michael Robidoux in his book, Skating in the Margins, at the end, you know, talks about Indigenous hockey spaces is spaces that are, you know, intergenerational and inclusive that create room for everybody to play. I saw this when I interviewed men in their 70s who were playing, who found space for men with Alzheimer's, men with Parkinson's, um, to play with them. And, and all these men wanted was, you know, fun, a good fun game. We have to find ways, I think, creative ways, imaginative ways of harnessing that kind of energy and infusing it into competitive spaces and, and, you know, asking questions about whether that's even possible in a competitive space. But I think there are lessons to be learned by looking at women's hockey and other hockey cultures that are not invested in the same uh, intergenerational violence, the same ties to colonial uh, institutions and colonial enterprises and, and see if we can take some of those lessons and, and, you know, work for, meaningful change in, in the leagues that mean so much to so many Canadians. So, so am I correct in reading what you're saying um, as the, perhaps the solution to some of the most harmful um, characteristics of um, this toxic hockey culture, it's actually also um, an anti-capitalist project as well? Yeah, I think so. I think the, the one thing we can say about, you know, men's hockey culture is that uh, that when it becomes competitive and corporate, it's changed and and not for the better. And so that part of our projects might be to to figure out whether we can create uh, sporting spaces that are not hyper commercialized, that aren't commercial spaces at all, and see what happens when we do that. Because the ones that I've looked at have some really promising and exciting attributes that I think most people would want to see in, in the sports they love, especially if they're played by people that they care about. And can, could you just very briefly, I know you've alluded to it, walk us through some of those um, attributes that you've, that you've explored. Yeah. So um, I've spent the last couple of years uh, working with and spending time doing some ethnographies of old men's hockey. And, and what I've seen there is that there's, there's a real prioritizing, not on winning, but on actually enjoying playing a good game, having fair and balanced teams so that everybody has a chance to, to do well. And because of that, you know, players are not as self-interested, that they're interested in, in producing fun for everybody around them. And to do that, they often make allowances in the way that sport is this way the sport is played. And these are players who played some of the highest levels of hockey and, and have continued to play into old age and, and really have fun creating good space and inclusive spaces for other athletes on the ice. So, you know, there might be a person uh, with Parkinson's, they, they leave a lot of space for that player so that he can, he can fall if he if he's going to fall, and you know they they don't come too close to him, but they allow him to to participate and be a part of the game. And the same with players with uh, with uh, cognitive issues, they help them. They help them get dressed. They help them play. They remind them, you know, what what way the game is going. Um, and this has just been a really beautiful lesson for me about the fact that 
you know, sport can be really beautiful and really exciting and really pleasurable and, and create spaces of, of inclusion. Um, because so much of the work I've done has really not been about that and has, has really focused and seen, you know, some of the, the most harmful impacts of the sport on, on young men. It's exciting to see that old men can produce something new. You know, many of these athletes were the same athletes that have come through these systems. Lots mm -hmm. of the guys I interviewed played hockey at, at extremely high levels. And, and there's something really exciting about the ways that gender can change over the life, which should give a, over the life course, which should give us uh, lots of hope that, you know, this isn't an inherent problem. This is a socially produced problem. And that means that we can change it. We can fix it and it can be better. Yeah. How do you think that those men were able to escape these dynamics? Because that's a really fascinating kind of question that you introduced there, right? As mm -hmm. we're talking about all the ways in which these things are reproduced over and over again. Um, and yet now suddenly we have this alternative where it's seemingly the, the same men who, as you have just said, were involved and immersed in and socialized by this very hockey culture we've been interrogating. Now they step out of that space. Uh, for some period of time, I guess, um, or maybe they don't, but they've somehow, they've, they've nonetheless, they've found another um, way or place to play hockey that is at least not framed by the capitalist imperatives, right? I mean, that's one thing that we can say that is like fundamentally different. And so the competitive impulses are not identical, but nonetheless, right, they, they were taught to play a particular way and now they're playing a different way. What makes that possible? I think, I mean, it's a, it's an issue of gender. Nobody cares about the gender expressions of old men, you know? Mm. And I, I, that is really freeing for these guys. It allows them to express care. There's changes in the body that means that they're already not going to conform to hegemonic notions of masculinity. Their dependence on their partners or their, their perceived dependence on their, their partners, all of the men I interviewed were straight, meant that they they were it was important to them to express love and care for women the women in their lives um they had experienced a, i mean the experience of being old just fundamentally changes gender in ways that that I, scholars i don't think have been really attentive to but it's because old men are often in terms of their gender expression kind of left to their own devices we often troublingly don't think about these old men as, as real men at all. And, and because of that, they can express gender differently. And so it's tricky to imagine how that might work for young men who are so frequently tied to hegemonic expressions of masculinity and hyper-masculinity. But I think the lesson here is that we might want to introduce some of these folks into hockey mm -hmm. and into mm -hmm. hockey culture that they might be able to, you know, demonstrate and model what, what a kind of socially just hockey culture looks like, even when it might be competitive. Yeah. Th yeah th this is, this is really an interesting um, line of inquiry and, and I urge listeners to, um, to not only read, um, your pieces, but also um, to, to look out for future work because it sounds like there's even more um, coming here. Um, I, the last question that um, we had is kind of, uh, we like to ask many of, many of our um, um, scholarly um, or academic um, guests what the, uh, about the importance of kind of public work and, and work outside the sort of traditional um, hegemonic academy. And you are much more than a sociologist and academic. You also do a lot of advocacy and activism, both within and beyond the academy. Could you tell us a little bit about this work and how you um, extend beyond traditional academic work? And perhaps why it's important to push the boundaries of what that sort of academic work can and should be? Yeah, I think I, I kind of like to think that I took my second year social theory class very seriously when I read Marxist thesis on Feuerbach. And, you know, I've really, I want to make the world better. You know, it's not about just studying the world, interpreting the world. It's about changing it. And I think in part, 
the kind of the work I did when I started, I thought I'd be able to really influence the hockey culture that, you know, from my master's work, I sort of naively picked up the phone and called Dave Branch and was like, I've done this study and I really think you need to hear about it. And they were like, no, <laughs> and it was similar, uh, I think with my PhD work. And so I had a lot of energy and I've channeled it into some other things. You know, I'm still, I'm doing a lot of media stuff on hockey and trying to help uh, change narratives, shape understandings and disrupt a kind of common sense of hockey culture that way. But I'm also um, a housing advocate, housing rights advocate. Um, and I do work with on um, temporary foreign workers. I, I want to model for my students that, you know, we can take the things we care about and, and produce social change. And so I've uh, we're, we're working to really disrupt things here in Fredericton, my partner and I, and a few others with the New Brunswick um, Tenants' Rights Coalition, and then with uh, a couple of other scholars, one here in Fredericton, Tracy Glynn and Reluca Bejean, we're doing some really fun and interesting work with temporary foreign workers on their experiences, their labor experiences in Atlantic Canada, which are terrible, I mean, to yeah. be frank, and especially terrible here in New Brunswick. But it, it really comes, you know, I've always like, what is the point of doing this work if we can't actually produce some some kind of change? And I worked so hard to produce some kind of change in hockey and have really felt not able to do that because of just the nature of, of men's elite level hockey in Canada. But it's really allowed me to channel some of that energy into some what I think are good projects and and some hopefully really promising ones. We'll see. We're hoping for rent control here in New Brunswick and a modernization of the Landlord-Tenant Act. And that would be really exciting. Great. And yeah, great work. And we are always um, supportive on this show of, of folks um, taking their work out onto the streets, if you will, or um, doing activism, taking their the knowledge generation that they do. Um, and, and applying it um, to the quote-unquote real world. So um, um, thank you so much um, for, for such a lovely interview um, and a brilliant, brilliant um, interview. We explained, I, I think we got to a lot um, of nuance about um, hockey cultures and, and more specifically about the sort of toxic elite masculinity um, hockey culture. And, and just thank you so much for, for laying that all out and, and coming on The End of Sport. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Okay, I'm just going to... Uh, uh.